0: Good morning, family. Happy Mother's Day to those who uh, have had a mother, who are a mother, who are going to be a mother, who are a mother to, to, uh, to others. I want to thank you for your sacrifice and your work. It's not easy, and today is your special day, and I hope your folks treat you well and take you out to dinner and all those good things. So this morning, we are on our third lesson in our series called Because He Has Risen. And we've taken the past three weeks to talk about different aspects of the results of our lives now that Christ has risen from the grave. So the first week we talked about how we could be reconciled back to God because of Jesus sacrifice. And then on last week we talked about how we could live in truth because of the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we're gonna talk about how we are a team. And I am going to have uh, this morning's scripture read by Max McLean because it's just fun and sometimes hearing it from a different voice in a different way can open your mind to help you think about the scriptures. So we're gonna hear from Max McLean and we're going from the NIV version of the Bible.
1: Masters, provide to the slaves with right and fair, right, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you, and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you.
0: That's how the early church received the word of God. They had to listen. There was no Bibles. This was a letter that was written from a person who was in prison, Apostle Paul, and he was writing this letter to encourage the people who were in a little teeny town called Colossus, which is now modern-day Turkey within that area. And he was a prisoner in jail, not because of anything that he had done wrong, other than the fact that he believed in Jesus Christ, the risen savior, and he was preaching about him. And the Romans didn't like that because in Rome, you worshiped Caesar. There was no other God. And you were put to death if you talked about anyone else. So Paul was in prison and he was writing this letter to the Colossians, and you can find it now in the New Testament as an encouragement for us to read today. And the reason that we read it today is because we can find encouragement for ourselves out of these ancient scriptures and out of these ancient words because it was inspired and written by God through men, and in this case it was Paul. So our text today, because it's a letter uh, and it was a very short letter, well, okay, long by our standards because we only text now and we talk in characters, not in complete sentences and paragraphs and things like that. So for Paul, it was only four chapters. If you could imagine writing a four-chapter letter today, it would probably kill most of you if you tried to write something that long. But uh, for Paul, that was a very short communication. And like I said, that was the only way that they had to communicate was by letter. And it wasn't like he could send out a mass letter. He just wrote one letter and it had to go to each church and each church would read it to the congregation and then they'd pass it on to the next. So, If you do uh, study a Bible, and if you are in the habit of reading scripture, this is probably one of the texts that you would skip over. And the reason that I say that is because it has a bunch of names in this text, and they're hard to pronounce, they're not like names like we have today, like, you know, Shanita and, you know, all the easy names we have today or that we think are easy today. These were names that were uh, of that time and of that century and of that culture. So a lot of times we kind of skip over it, but I thought it might be instructive today to go back and look at this because out of the four chapters that Paul wrote to this church, and he was writing about a lot of different things. He was writing because there were false teachers in Colossus. We talked about that two weeks ago. There were people that were preaching a false word. They were saying that it wasn't just faith in Jesus Christ alone, that they, if you were to believe in Jesus, you had to do that, but you also had to be circumcised, and you also had to live like a Jewish person. And and you also had to eat a certain way man added all of these things on to the simple gospel which is just faith in Jesus Christ alone. So there were people that were trying to discourage and make it hard for other people. That doesn't sound like anything that happens today, obviously, church. We don't do anything to try to uh, put any other rules on people who are not believers. We don't ask them to dress a certain way or talk a certain way. We don't ask them to give up maybe some of the things that they're doing. We don't do anything like that. Because when you do your teaching, a false gospel. You're adding to. It is about faith in Jesus Christ. And then once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we let Jesus sort out all of the other particulars in a person's life. I know he had to sort out all the particulars in mine to get me to a place where I'm halfway clothed and in my right mind this morning, but that's a whole nother thing. So I thought it would be interesting to look at this letter this morning and and look at what he was trying to tell us. So actually, if you could put the scripture up, that would be great. If you look at the beginning of this scripture and you go down to verse 7, you'll see that um, even though Paul was probably one of the most brilliant and one of the most gifted men in church history, he was surrounded by a team of people that were also devoted servants of Christ. These were men who were with them and uh, encouraged him, and he spent the last chapter of this letter, almost 12 verses, which is unusual, talking about these people and encouraging their hearts. So obviously that there's something there that we should pick up. The first thing I think that is, is that you'll see that even though Paul was brilliant, he was not a one-man show that the church is not a one-person show. It has nothing to do with just the voice, the mouth that you hear on Sunday morning. It takes a team of people to, um, to be the church. So if we were to take a second and look at the team roster, we'll get some ideas of how the church functioned back in that day, and then we'll bring it forward to today. So the first person that is on the roll is that name, that first name, and that's Titicus. Antiticus was actually a Gentile. He was from Asia Minor, and he was one of Paul's buddies, and he traveled with him when he went to plant churches on his missionary journey. Now, apparently, this is somebody that Paul uh, considered very trustworthy because he gave the letter that we just heard to him to take back to the church in Colossians so that um, they could Read it and be encouraged. If you keep going on in the letter, you'll see a name called Onessus. And Onessus was uh, accompanied this trip as well. Now, the interesting thing about him was that he was a runaway slave. Now, Paul doesn't out him in this letter, but he was a runaway slave, and Paul was in a position now where he had preached the gospel to Onimus, and I'm sorry, Onimus, and was sending him back to his master and he didn't feel like he had to uh, mention this in in this letter. In fact, we probably never e- would have even known about his plight um, until we get to the next book of the Bible, which is Philemon, which talks about this transaction. But right now, it's interesting because this man, who was once a, one, a runaway slave, Paul is now calling a faithful and beloved brother. Then the next name, if you keep scrolling through, you'll see is Aristarchus, and Aristarchus was a Jewish believer, and he was from a small place called Thessalonica, and he traveled with Paul when he took... um, money to the saints in Jerusalem. He was a trustworthy man, and he at least began the journey with Paul to Rome, but scholars also think that he may have been shipwrecked along with Paul. Paul went through a whole lot. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He went through a lot of things um, in the fact that in his uh, effort to preach the gospel, so I guess we should you know, consider it a privilege that we don't have to go through all of those things living here in uh, the United States. There are people around the world who do, but we're fortunate here that we don't have to suffer in that way. Tradition kind of says that um, Aristarchus was uh, martyred in Rome. We also, when we skim through, we see the name Mark. Now, Mark should encourage all of our hearts. You might remember back in the book of Acts, when Paul first started uh, his mission, Mark came with his cousin Barnabas to minister with Paul. And something happened along the way, we don't know what, but Mark ran away. And Paul was furious with Mark for leaving the mission field, but Mark was young. I mean, what did he know? He it was harder, I guess, than he thought it was going to be, and and he left and. Um, It caused Barnabas and Paul to actually have a little falling out because of Mark. Barnabas, whose very name means encourager, wanted to continue to mentor this young man. He saw something in him. Paul was like, forget that kid. He can't do anything. He ran away. He's disappointed us. So they split and went their separate ways. But what is interesting now is 12 years later, we think this, right, this uh, note was written 12 years later, um, Paul is recommending Mark without hesitation. It says to welcome him if he comes your way. So there's always hope, even if you start out slow, even if uh, you might, people might need, not even think you have what it takes. Maybe one person does. Maybe there is someone in your life who will encourage you and continue to talk to you and grow you up. And look, 12 years later, he's a man who, the Apostle Paul uh, counts among his brothers. Another name that you see is Jesus called Justice. And um, really that's all we know about him. His name was Jesus and they called him Justice but he was called a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. And along with two other Jews, Mark and, um, and uh, Aristarchus, Sorry, he was giving encouragement to Paul. The last name that we see is Epaphras. And Epaphras was the man who this letter was written about. He went to Paul because he was a pastor and he needed encouragement. And he went to Paul to continue to learn. And um, he went to uh, encourage Paul and he went and sat at the feet of the apostle. And Paul noted about him that he was a man of God and he was a man of prayer and that he was a man who loved his faith congregation in Colossus. So that's kind of the posse. He mentions Luke, who is a doctor and who was always by him. Luke was his boy. Luke was there when he was finally executed. And there's another name that they mention, which is Demas. And we don't know anything about Demas other than he sent his greetings. So In this relatively short letter, Paul took it upon himself to mention and give a shout out to all of his boys who accompanied him on this journey. So, as I said, we find out that just from that alone, that the church is not a one-man show, but it's a team effort, and the team is the family of God. You know, today we kind of think of church as a building. We say that I go to church over at 1234 Street, or you might hear parents telling little kids, hey, don't run around in God's house, don't run around in the church. But no building is God's house. The people who meet in the building are his temple. He doesn't dwell in buildings, he dwells in people. The early church met in homes, as a matter of fact, not church buildings. Paul refers in this letter to a woman named Nympha and her church, which was located at her house. You know, churches did not even own buildings until the middle of the third century. Another thing that uh, we recognize when we read this passage is we're a team, and if you want to follow the analogy of that language of a team, then if we're on a team, everybody plays a position. Everybody's got a role, everybody's got a position that they need to play. And the position that we all play, while we are gifted in different ways, all of our title is servant or slave. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. If you look at uh, Paul's reference in 4 7 to Titicus, he says, as a faithful servant and fellow bond servant of the Lord. A bond servant would be better translated as a bond slave, but it's been translated as servant because I guess that's a little bit easier to swallow. All of us are considered to be slaves of Christ. And the reason that I say that is because there's a difference between being a servant and being a slave. A servant has some choice about who they work for. A slave does not. A slave is owned by someone, and in our case, we are owned by Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a great price, the scriptures say. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, and I know that that sounds really basic, but we really overlook that sometimes. Sometimes we get so busy serving and doing, we think that we're doing it for the church, but we're not doing it for the church and you're certainly not doing it for me. You're not even doing it for those that you see sitting around. You're doing it unto the Lord because you are servants, you are slaves of Jesus Christ and our allegiance and our obedience is to him and he gives us our marching orders and we do what he tells us to do. He bought you with his blood, so you serve him as your, as your master. So to recap, Christians are a family because of Jesus Christ, and every Christian is committed to serving the Lord. The church is not a one-man show, but has the function of a team, And the team consists of men and women of all kinds of racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. The team is the family of God. And every member of the team is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, how does a team best operate? How does this team best operate? Well, I would say to you that this team best operates under encouragement. We work best when we encourage each other to become all that God wants us to be. It's kind of a two-part thing. Our first goal is that we want everybody to become all that God wants us to be. And then the second is to create an atmosphere of encouragement so everyone can grow. So... If we were to take this one at a time, we would say that it's our aim, just like it was Paul's aim, to tell others about Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present people to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. And then in a few verses down, Paul says that his aim is to save us. We tell people about Christ because he has been reconciled. He has reconciled himself to us through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his presence and now you are holy and blameless and you stand before him without a single fault. Imagine that. Imagine being holy and blameless and without a single fault. But that's who God says you are when you've accepted His Son, Jesus Christ. He emphasizes three things in this little short letter. His goal for the church, which should be our goal as well. The first is that God wants us to be in right relationship with him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of faith in Christ that we can begin our relationship with God. Everything else depends on that. And all that we do as a church should aim at helping people become mature and complete in Christ. The next thing that God wants is for us to walk rightly with one another in love. After lifting Jesus Christ up, Paul applies this same principle to our relationships. He says things like, we have to put to death the members of our body with regard to sexual immorality and greed. He tells us that we need to cast off all of our anger and abusive language and lying, that if we are going to live a Christ-centered life, that should show in how we live and how we treat other people. We should prefer and treat other people with respect. The third thing that God wants us to be right with is that he wants us to rightly relate to people through prayer and wise witnessing. If our first priority is to be in right relationship with God, saying that uh, he is our Christ and that we are sinful and we are separated from him and receiving his gift of salvation, if that's the first thing, And if the second thing is to be right with others and walk in love, then the third thing would be to be in prayer and to be a wise witness. That has to be our priority. God wants all of us to be all that he has created us to be. We've all been created with a purpose. And we're to love people And we're to encourage people. And we're supposed to share the love of Christ that we've been given to others that don't know. It's hard out here. It's a lost and hurting and lonely world. And the way that we live in this world is supposed to be winsome. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be gracious and it's supposed to draw people to Christ. So that's what we're aiming for. We want each person in this room under the sound of my voice to be all that God wants him or her to be. We want everyone to be rightly related to Jesus. We want everyone walking in love. We want everyone praying for the next ones. And the best way to accomplish all of those things would be in an atmosphere of encouragement. Encouragement is the atmosphere in which we help one another to grow. Look at the passage again. It kind of oozes with encouragement. Paul was a master of affirming people, because he wanted them to grow, and he wanted to see people come to the Lord. So I'm going to give you nine quick things of how you can be an encouragement to other people, and I want you to practice that today with your mom, or the person that has raised you as a mom, or just be an encouragement to somebody today. The first way that you can be that uh, encouragement, that you can create an atmosphere where encouragement can be received and thrive is with open communication. You know, when people are struggling and you ask them, how are you doing today? Talking about in the church. And that person says, oh, I'm blessed. Everything's great. God's faithful. That's not quite the truth, is it? It's hard. But in order to have open communication in order to be able to receive what the body has for you. You have to be honest. Now, sure, there's appropriate sharing. Nobody wants you to come and open up a vein and tell all of your business. I'm not saying that. But when you can share, Honestly, about where you are. Hey, you know what? My kids are giving me a fit right now. Could you pray for me? Hey, I have a mom who is older and she's sick, and I'm working and I'm struggling trying to hold all these things in tension. My boss is not the nicest person in the world. <laughs> And I have a hard time not, um, oh, shall we say, holding on to my religion while I'm at work. All of those things are real. And when you're not honest about what it is that you're going through, when you try to put on that, I got on all of my church clothes and everything's okay and I'm blessed and highly favored, you're doing two things. The first thing that you're doing is you're depriving us of an opportunity to pray for you and to encourage you because it blesses me when I can encourage and pray for you. And the other thing that it does is it robs you of a blessing to be able to unburden yourself, to know that somebody else cares about you. Living in honest communication helps the body be the body. Another way that um, having an atmosphere of encouragement is helpful is that it helps you, and I want to be careful about how I explain this, it helps you to look at the trials of life through God's eyes. It helps you to interpret your trials by faith. Now, hang on with me while I explain this because it really is important and it really, really, really is not an easy thing to do. Your attitude, how you journey through life, can be greatly uh, affected by your perspective. In life we have trials and we shouldn't be surprised by that. Jesus told us we were gonna have trials, we're gonna have trials. But if we can try to interpret our trials through God's eyes and stay in the positive as opposed to a defeated type of attitude, it can help you overcome your situation. Now for me, I'm a pretty basic person. So when things happen in my life that um, I don't quite understand, the first thing that I do is go back to what I know. And what I know is that God loves me. What I know is that God has a purpose for me. What I know that God is not out to harm me. And so as I look at a situation, I try to look at it through that lens. And it helps me to be able to get a bigger perspective. Let me give you another example. In Colossians 1, chapter 8, Paul is talking to Titicus. And he tells Titicus to tell the Colossians about his circumstances so that it may encourage their hearts. Now, the truth of Paul's circumstances was that he was in prison, he was chained up to a guard, he was uh, gonna be executed, and there were people that were around who were uh, not telling the truth, that were uh, making lies about him. I mean, it wasn't a good situation. So how in the world could hearing his story Encourage people. The way Paul saw it was like this. I'm in chains, but that just means I have a captive audience that I can preach the gospel to. And the shifts change every few hours, so I get to teach a new person about the goodness of God. And in that situation, Paul brought a number of people to faith. He even said, It doesn't matter to me if people are talking bad about me as long as they're talking about Christ. That's some perspective. But when we can interpret our problems through God's vision, it helps to change our perspective. Another way that we can encourage people is when our brothers and sisters are um, being unjustly attacked. If you're involved in ministry, if you're living on this earth, you're going to be criticized. And sometimes, you know, you expect it from people who are enemies or the enemy, but it stings when it comes from your own team. And at times like that, you need a mark or a Jesus justice to encourage you. You know, encouragement is a mutual need. Even though Paul was one of the great apostles, one of the most gifted men in church history, he acknowledged that he needed encouragement. And encouragement is often given through verbal affirmation. Stop and tell somebody they're doing a good job. Stop and look and say, hey, cute outfit. Stop and say, hey, I see you as you're trying to persevere under your circumstances, it means a lot. Encouragement flows through prayer. It feels good when people are praying for you and you know that people are thinking about you. That's an encouragement. It's encouraging when we extend and grant forgiveness to each other and to those that have wronged us. I told you in this letter that there was a, a man who was a runaway slave. He had wronged his master and run away. But Paul sent him back to ask for forgiveness. Encouragement sometimes also requires general correction, and a challenge in the context of affirmation. Sometimes I need to be, okay now. <laughs> I see you over there. That might not be the way you want to handle that. Speaking truth in love is also a way to encourage But the last thing that I would say about encouragement is that it always needs to be bathed in grace. The final sentence of that letter was, the grace be with you. And this was more than just a sincerely yours type of ending. Grace was the theme of Paul's gospel the motivating force behind all he did for the Lord. Grace means that God blesses us apart from anything that we deserve. He saves us by grace, we grow in grace, and by grace, we strive to be holy vessels used by God. Beneath all that we do in serving the Lord is his abundant grace. So, just to catch up, because I see that um, we're on D, and I know everybody's looking around who are note-takers. E is encouragement is given through verbal affirmation. It flows through prayer. It's extended when we grant forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Encouragement sometimes needs gentle correction, means gentle correction, And encouragement should always be bathed in prayer and in grace. So that's it, family. That's the little um, book of Colossians. Little love letter to a small church in a small town. But it has a lot of big ideas. It teaches us that we're a team and that our job is twofold, to encourage each other and to let others know about Christ. So my question to you as I take my seat is, who are you encouraging? Who are you helping to grow in Christ? Who are you serving? Who are you praying for? We all need a little encouragement because it's with encouragement that we can grow to be all the things that God has called us to be. As Tiago and the band come up and give us our closing song, and Pastor Jonathan will give us our benediction, I'd like you to pray with me. Father God, There's nothing in your word that we cannot use to teach us and correct us and grow us. Even if it's just looking at a list of names, you put it there for a reason. You gave us those people as examples for a reason. Father, I thank you for the men and women of faith that are in your word. I'm sure most of them would be shocked to know that their names are being mentioned all of these thousands of years later and that they are actual examples of people that we can learn from. I'm sure as they walked this earth, they were just living their life like we are and trying to do that the best that they can but their testimony is that they loved and served you. So, Father, let that be our testimony as well, that we love you and that we're grateful to you and that we love you and that you own our life. Help us to be faithful. And we say this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.